Well, last week we were given some hard and challenging words from the Lord Jesus. We were told that the only way to attain to everlasting life is by denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following Jesus to a painful crucifixion. The cross is a great symbol of shame. It's a symbol of shame. It is an announcement of our death and our union with Christ. It is also a sign of our death to the world and its ways. At the same time, the cross is also a great symbol of victory and conquest. Because Christ died and rose from the dead, victorious over Satan, sin, and death, for the Christian, the cross is turned into a symbol of glory. We make jewelry out of it. It is the crown that we wear upon our head at the same time we feel its burden upon our back. What is the cross? It is the tree of life, a tree of life that you can only partake of if you are first crucified on it with Jesus. So the cross is a mystery, and it is a window into the mystery of the gospel. The Apostle Paul calls the cross a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The cross is an embarrassment to those who expected the Messiah to come and take the kingdoms of the world unscathed. And it is an embarrassment to Greek philosophers who laud human wisdom and human strength. As Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke 16, 15, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. If it's highly esteemed amongst men, uh, God hates it. It's an abomination in his sight. Likewise, in Isaiah 55, 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. So the way that God chose to save the world is through death and resurrection. God takes the thing that you most fear. You fear death. You're afraid to die. And he takes the shame, that fear of shame. You don't want to be uh, stripped naked before the world. And he takes those things that man is naturally afraid of and he turns it inside out. Death and resurrection is the very pattern and sequence that God has woven into the fabric of reality. And so the gospel is something that we are actually immersed in, surrounded by all the time and yet are too often blind to. You think there is evening, and there is morning. There is darkness, and then there is light. There is sleep, and then there is waking. There is the weariness before the rejuvenation of your strength. There is the coldness of winter before the warmth of spring. There is the little caterpillar that goes into his cocoon and then suddenly turns into a butterfly. There is seed time and harvest. There is sowing and reaping. Obviously, you should know that if there is death, if there is a cross, that there is also a resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul makes this very point in 1 Corinthians 15, 36. He says that uh, if you're a person with five senses and have lived in the world for any amount of time, uh, you're a fool if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. He says you're a fool if you do not recognize that a seed must die before it be can become fruitful. And then from this, he goes on to prove the nature of our resurrection Bodies, He says a few verses later, so also is the resurrection of the dead. 
It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So if you want glory, honor, and immortality, if you want the upgrade to your body, to your very weak and frail and at times very sick body, if you want to exchange that for something that never gets sick, never suffers, never dies, that doesn't need food or exercise to maintain it in perfect strength, well, Jesus gives us in our text this morning a preview of that future glory, a preview of what we will look like, of what you will look like if you follow him all the way to the cross. What is the destination for those who follow Christ. That is uh, what Mark has been taking us on, a a journey that that we're following along with these disciples to see where Jesus is going to lead. Well, where does he take us? Jesus has made clear by now that there are some hard stops along the way. There are the trials of youth, of puberty, of finding your calling, of finding your vocation, of finding a spouse. There are midlife crises, crises, there are health crises, there are financial crises, there are many crises in our life. But where do all of these crises lead? Well, they lead to a crisis of your death. But that is not the end. The ultimate destination for the Christian is resurrection unto glory. It is entrance into a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So why do I begin this sermon with all this talk about resurrection here in the very middle of Mark's gospel? Well, because it's the purpose of our text this morning to stir us up to a living hope. That's what the transfiguration uh, is. It's this really strange moment smack in the middle of the gospel that just reveals something about the future, something for us to ponder, and something that even the disciples who see it are not allowed to talk about until after the resurrection. It's a very peculiar event. So only three out of the 12 disciples get this, and then they only learn about it from the other gospel writers after the resurrection. So what does the transfiguration of Jesus now give us? It gives us a certain hope a certain hope of the glory that awaits us after the cross. God uh, knows you. He knows your frame, and he knows that if he asks you to die, if he asks you to follow him uh, into the grave, then there better be a reason. There better be something on the other side of the grave. So God uh, does not ask people to take blind leaps of faith. He doesn't doesn't call Christianity a leap of faith into the dark. No, Jesus comes as light into the world, and he tells us in very plain terms, in very plain speech, in the open light of day, who he is, where he is going, and where he's going to take you if you will follow him. He is the son of God. He is going to die, and he is going to rise again for our sins. So just in case you had some doubts about following Jesus, about picking up the heavy cross. If you had any doubts about the resurrection, well, the transfiguration is a preview of what's on the other side. So it's meant to give us hope. It's like the trailer before you get to watch the movie. Here's the little trailer for what's coming uh, next. The transfiguration is what happens to a person when the soul that sees God pours forth into the body. 
Jesus shows us what is shining in his soul, behind the veil of his flesh, a glory and a radiance that is whiter and brighter than the sun. Okay, all of that by way of introduction. Uh, This text is meant to give us hope. Let's consider now uh, these verses together. Brace yourselves, because this this is going to be a challenging sermon, a challenging text for us. So beginning in verse 1, it says, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, truly I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Okay, picking up the context here, this is a continuation and conclusion of Jesus teaching the disciples and the crowds about uh, the cost of discipleship. So the verse that precedes this, how our sermon ended last week, is this. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So there's this kind of threat of shame, of judgment coming, and then he gives this verily I say to you statement. So he says unto that group that's standing there listening to him, and particularly the disciples, that some of them are not going to die before the kingdom of God comes with power. So the question is, to what does this kingdom coming with power refer? What is this a reference to? Uh, Some people have thought that it refers to the transfiguration, because that's the next thing that happens. Uh, But that would make no sense for Jesus to say, uh, some of you standing here are are going to uh, taste death or not taste death before the kingdom of God comes with power. Do you see the logic of how silly it would be for him to say that and then instantly do it, okay? This this must be a point at which at least some of them are going to die. Some of them are going to taste death. So according to Jesus, it's going to come during the disciples' lifetime, but some of them are going to have died before it comes. Some are going to live, some are going to die. Um, Other commentators have suggested that uh, the kingdom coming with power refers to Pentecost. And uh, while that, I think, is a possible option, uh, I think it's unlikely because really all of the apostles were still alive except for Judas. So, uh, you know, technically you could take the sum there as referring to all of them except for Judas. And you could say, yeah, this is a reference to Pentecost. And Pentecost is a very significant event. However, um, I think there's a much better option that has a lot more biblical support. A few chapters from now, uh, in Mark 13, Jesus is going to prophesy uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the old world. So this is what he says in Mark 13, 24 to 26. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. We'll get into this in uh, much greater detail when we get to Mark 13, uh, but this is not a reference to the end of human history. This is not a reference to the bodily return of Christ in final judgment. This is what a lot of people think, and they are wrong. Rather, this is a reference to the coming of the saints in union with Christ to receive the kingdom from the Father. And we know this, it's actually pretty obvious if you know the Old Testament, Uh, this is a direct quote from Daniel chapter 7. And there in Daniel 7, if you read it, uh, we are told the Son of Man is going to ascend, he's going to come up, to the Ancient of Days, and then Daniel says, what does this mean? The angel comes and interprets, and he says, the Son of Man is the saints coming to receive 
this kingdom. So this is not Christ coming down to earth. This is the saints in Christ ascending up to heaven. That is what the coming in the clouds is a reference to. I could prove this to you um, uh, a bunch of different ways, um, but we'll, we'll wait to Mark 13 before we do this in full. Uh, so this is, just, this is just your preview for when we get there uh, in the future. Furthermore, uh, this language in Mark 13 about the stars falling from heaven and the powers being shaken is not at all about our solar system collapsing. This is about the end of a spiritual, political administration. And more specifically, it is the end of the four kingdoms that are spoken about in the book of Daniel. Uh, This, again, can be proved uh, from many passages. I'm just going to give you two uh, examples of this. This uh, language in Mark 13 of, you know, the sun being uh, darkened, the moon put out, um, this is uh, a reference to Isaiah 13, and it refers to the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persians. So listen to Isaiah 13. It says this, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So, uh, the falling of stars, the darkening of sun and moon, the earth being moved, uh, is a reference to the fall of a king, king and his kingdom, along with the spiritual or demonic powers behind them. Uh, You can see this more explicitly if you read through uh, Daniel or even the book of Revelation. Uh, The second reason we know this is not about the end of human history is because uh, Jesus gives us a timestamp for this. He says that all this great tribulation, the coming of Antichrist, this cosmic upheaval is going to take place within one generation. That is, within roughly 40 years of his prophecy. So a few verses later, in Mark 13, 30, Jesus says this, Verily, truly, I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. And all these things that Jesus says are going to take place includes the spread of the gospel, the great tribulation, the coming of Antichrist, the stars falling, and the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. All of those events took place in the first century within one generation, just like Jesus said they would, and just like church history attests to. By 70 AD, some of the apostles had indeed died. Uh, James, for example, was martyred. But some, like John, were still alive. And that is when the kingdom came with power. Uh, To deny this is to, in effect, call Jesus a false prophet. Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. There are many Christians in the world who think the kingdom of God has not yet come with power. They look around and they think this world is run by all of these evil people. But have you not read the book of Revelation? Have you not read Daniel? Right? We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. I'll give you another uh, quotation on this. Revelation 11.15, which uh, is uh, uh, speaking of 70 AD, the resurrection in 70 AD. It says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So when did the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ? 
was in the first century. It's just like Jesus said it would. The kingdom came with power. So I know this may be new to some of you guys, and there's a lot more we'll say about this when we get to uh, chapter 13, but there's, there's your, your preview. So having given, given this promise in verses 2 to 8, we then now ascend the mountain for Christ's transfiguration. Uh, verses 2 and 3, it says, And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. So here we have the fulfillment of multiple Old Testament prophecies that tell us who Jesus is. First, we see that Jesus is clothed in light. It says, his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. Uh, In Matthew's version of this same event, it says, his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So who is Jesus if he is emanating light such that it extends even to his clothing? Well, Psalm 104 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as with a garment. God wears light as a garment. So who is Jesus that he wears the same? We see also that Jesus is fulfilling uh, the prophecies of Malachi 3 and 4. And Joe read uh, at least part of Malachi 3 uh, earlier in the service. And there we are told of two messengers that are to come. One is Elijah, who we know is John the Baptist, and he prepares the way of the Lord. And the other messenger is who? Well, if you read that text closely, you'll notice the second messenger is the Lord himself. It says in Malachi 3, 2 to 3, But who may abide the day of the Lord's coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So notice that the Lord is said to come and purify his people like fuller's soap. Uh, If you don't know what a fuller is, a fuller is kind of like a professional dry cleaner, someone who you'd give your linens to so that they can bleach them and uh, give them back to you for, uh, you know, nice white tablecloth on your your table. So that's what a, a fuller is. And this is what Mark draws our attention to that uh, the Lord is going to come and purify his people like fuller's soap. And, and Mark says, Jesus' clothes were so white as no fuller on earth can white them. So who is Jesus? He is the one who comes to make his people divinely white, to make them pure, to make them spotless. Jesus comes to elevate human nature to what God had always intended it to be. This is the glory that radiates from who Jesus is, and not only as the divine Son of God, but as the heavenly Son of Man, who is perfect in his humanity. He's not just shining because he's God. He's shining because he's a perfect man. He has the heavenly glory that you also, who will not become God, but will be like God, you also will put on this same glory. And this isn't even the fullness of the glory. This is just part of it. So what this means for you and I who are united to Jesus is that this is what you're going to look like one day. This is what uh, the dullest, the dimmest of us are going to look like. We are going to shine in the resurrection. 
Daniel 12.3 says this, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So when the kingdom of Christ comes with power, when it came in power in 70 AD, and the stars are falling from the heavens, those are old angelic powers, it is the saints who replace them. We are the stars, right? We are what Abraham looked up in the sky when God said, number the stars, that he's looking at us. Paul says in Ephesians that we are presently seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is why he says also in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, that you are going to judge angels one day. This is why he says in Philippians 2, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as stars in the world. So Jesus is revealing the majesty that awaits us and the glory, glory that the saints already have growing inside of them. Romans 8 says that all creation is groaning for our glory to be revealed. Romans 8, 18 to 19 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. God is glorious, but a lot of people read this passage and think it's just about creation longing for God's glory. But notice, it's talking about the glory that God gives to the body that is connected to the head. Okay? We are in Christ. We are united to him. And creation is longing, creation is groaning for the transfiguration of your body. And so as we groan and as we suffer in this life, we are to keep our hope firmly fixed on this glory that Christ is going to come and reveal and and show to the whole world in us. This is how Paul can say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. There is no comparison with our present sufferings and the glory that is gonna be revealed in us. Jesus is showing that glory that's gonna be revealed in you. Now, after Jesus is transfigured, there are two people who appear, Elijah and Moses. This is in verse four. And we might wonder why, of all the people that Jesus could have appeared with, why these two men? And this has puzzled many commentators, and there are many possible reasons for this. Uh, To start with, you gotta think a little bit about the lives of Moses and Elijah. Elijah is a kind of second Moses figure. There's a lot of similarities between them. Both uh, are people that are forerunners, and then someone else comes after them to lead the people into the land. So Moses precedes Joshua, Elijah precedes Elisha. Uh, Both men were prophets who faced down kings and were persecuted by them. Moses by Pharaoh, Elijah by Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel. Both men also, perhaps significantly for our uh, uh, purposes here, both of them had visions of God on top of a mountain. So there's not very many people who get the mountaintop glory of the Lord experience. Moses and Elijah were two of those guys. Um, There are a lot of other similarities between these two men, uh, but all that notwithstanding, I think the primary reason for their appearance with Jesus is to make them into witnesses that Jesus is the Son of God. 
This is the whole purpose of Mark's gospel, after all, right? Uh, We saw earlier that some people thought that Jesus might be Elijah. And so here, by the appearance of of Elijah, clearly there's a distinction between the two. Okay, he can't be Elijah because there's Elijah, right? So uh, it also adds that. Uh, It also turns the Jews' greatest authority, Moses, into a personal witness to Christ. So when the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, oh, we follow Moses, we follow God's law, well, the transfiguration reveals Moses leads you to Jesus. Moses was writing in the Torah about the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the scribes and the Pharisees have the veil over their eyes. They cannot see what the scriptures are actually pointing to. Jesus says, you know, you search the scriptures, you think that you have eternal life in them, it is they that testify of me. So the the transfiguration, by having Elijah and Moses there, Jesus takes the biggest authorities for the Jews, sets sets himself in between them as more glorious than both of them, and he makes them into witnesses of his divine identity. So when the Jews and the scribes, when they are going to put Jesus to death, who, who could condemn them? Well, Moses and Elijah, the very people that they are claiming to be Their authorities, well, they were there to see Jesus' glory. They know that he is the Son of God. They are especially witnesses to the voice of God from the cloud that says, this is my beloved Son, hear him. This is my beloved Son, hear him. This moment in Jesus' ministry should sound a little familiar to you. It's a sequel to his baptism. It is a kind of a second anointing. At his baptism, the father said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now here for a second time with Moses and Elijah and the three disciples present, the father declares, this is my beloved son, hear him. In Moses and in Elijah, remember Elijah didn't die, so he went up to heaven. Moses did die, so he went down to Shale. You also have here witnesses from all parts of the cosmos. So you have Moses witnessing from the underworld. You have Elijah witnessing from paradise. You have the disciples witnessing from the earth. And then you have God's voice from heaven. So there's this kind of threefold witness of of all of the cosmos hearing that this is God's beloved son. So this is the command that the father gives. This is my beloved son, hear him. So will you listen to Jesus? Will you hear him? That is the one sentence, the one command the Father gives. He could have said a lot more. Right? If, I was, if I was God in this moment, I would say a lot more. But he just says, this is my beloved son, hear him. And that's it. That's it. But we are hard of hearing. This is what the Gospels have shown us so far. The disciples still do not understand. They still miss it. So this is the climax of the entire first half of Mark's gospel. We had Jesus' baptism earlier, then him going and doing all of these miraculous and mighty works. It comes truly to a peak here on the mountain at the very center of the book. This is, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then now we're going to go down the mountain and the next place we're going to go to is start working our ascent up to Jerusalem. So this is kind of the geographic uh, topography of this book. Uh, continuing in verses 9 to 10, it says, And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising of the dead should mean. 
So despite this uh, revelation, the disciples are now even more confused. They appear to be wondering, if Jesus is so powerful, if he is the son of God, uh, then why would he rise from the dead? Why would he die in the first place? Is this a metaphorical rising from the dead, kind of like the metaphor about bread and leaven? So Jesus has talked in figures of speech and parables to them, and so now they think, okay, maybe this is another parable. Uh, what, What does the rising of the dead mean? And, and honestly, if they knew the Bible fairly well, uh, the resurrection of the dead is something that is spoken of in primarily figurative terms uh, in the Old Testament. So the disciples are confused, and they ask Jesus in verse 11, why say the scribes that Elias or Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught, or uh, treated with contempt, is uh, how you could translate that. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they wanted, as it is written of him. The disciples are aware, via the scribes, of some of these prophecies about Elijah and the resurrection. And there was debate, just like there is today, about how to interpret these different prophecies and whether they are figurative or literal and when they're going to happen. I'll give you a couple examples of this. So uh, Ezekiel 37 is a great resurrection text, but it is talking about a national or figurative resurrection for the nation of Israel. So the the valley of the dry bones, and they, they stand as an army, and we're told this is a prophecy of the Jews eventually being brought back into uh, the promised land. We see uh, similar language in Luke 2.34. So this, this is when Jesus is a newborn baby. They bring him to the temple, and Simeon takes him up uh, in his arms, and he says to Mary, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising, death and resurrection, of many in Israel. So already at Jesus' birth, there is some kind of death and resurrection that's going to be associated with Jesus' ministry. And the question is, well, what kind of death and resurrection is it? What the disciples and the Jews in general expected from the Messiah was that he would bring about a national resurrection. He would restore the kingdom to Israel. He would bring in the kingdom of God and establish God's justice on earth. What they did not expect was a literal bodily resurrection in the middle of history. In their minds, that does happen, but it only happens at the very end of history. You remember when uh, Jesus goes to raise Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead? And they know that, Lord, we know he'll rise at the last day. And Jesus says, well, I can make him rise right now. And he, and he goes and does that. So the Jews had in their mind a final resurrection at the end of history, a literal bodily one, and then they also had this idea of a kind of figurative national resurrection for the nation when finally they have their independence, they have the priesthood back, they have their kings, they have the word of the Lord, they have all those things restored unto them. That's what the Messiah is meant to bring. So they have these kind of two different resurrections in their mind, and the disciples are confused. Well, which, which one is this a reference to? So Jesus tells them, Elias did come, Elijah did come, and they missed it. It was John the Baptist. And when John baptized the nation, and when he baptized Christ, John restored all things. Because in Jesus, the entire government of the kingdom, priestly, kingly, prophetic offices were actually restored, these things that had fallen into disarray. I'll close with this. 
It says in 1 John 3, 2 to 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. The Gospels give us the transfiguration of Jesus to show us the glory that is to come, the glory of a final resurrection. And although we do not see it now with our mortal eyes, we hope for it. We hope for it by faith. And in the meantime, John says that whoever has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. So we are to behold the purity of the Lord Jesus, the shininess, the whiteness, the glory of Jesus, and from that say, we want to be like that. So cast aside your sins. Cast aside the filth and the dirt, the flesh that clings so closely, and put on the garments of the Lord Jesus that you might share in his righteousness. This is what the death and resurrection of Christ accomplishes for us, and it is what the transfiguration is a foretaste of. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.